0: Welcome, everybody, to the Informed Secular Minds podcast. I am Corey, also known as dopanephrine. You can follow me on Twitter and Periscope under that handle. And with me, as always, is my co-host, El Duterino. That's Scott. You can follow him on Twitter and Periscope as well. It's going to be a good week to do so. Uh, he's got a very interesting truth pursuit to discuss with everybody over the coming weeks. We want to encourage you to follow him at El Duterino. E-L-D-U-D-E. I R E N O you can follow the show on Periscope and on Twitter at ISM podcast um, I think that our Periscope is, is not quite up yet. So if anybody is, is waiting to jump over to that for some reason, bear with us. It should be up momentarily hosting that as always is young Athlon three nine nine. He always helps us out with that. We want to thank the rest of our team. Cat is cat. That's all Hallows night on Twitter uh, she helps a lot with the organization behind the scenes, and of course, Arabin, who does our graphics for us and makes these fantastic posters that we get to uh, uh, that we get to share with everybody. It looks like the Periscope is now live. For anybody who is waiting on that, um, we have a, a a good episode for you this evening. We wanna we wanna jump into something uh, that's a, a little complex, something that we don't always talk about. Um, uh, as atheists or as uh, epistemologists or as um, uh, counter-apologists. We, we, we want to talk about uh, spirituality without God, uh, the notion that spirituality is a human trait and that it does not need to be uh, wrapped up or married to religion. Uh, this is something that uh, we've been talking about on and off for, for months. It's, it's always been something that is interested uh, myself and Scott uh, and we're, we're very excited to, uh, to, uh, to bring you some, uh, some conversation on that. We also have a very special guest uh, joining us for the second half of the show. Uh, Kate is uh, is known as the Doubting Pastor. This is somebody who, uh, again, we've known for, for a while. We've had a lot of very interesting conversations with her, and she will be with us for the second half of the program. So we can discuss her journey, uh, both in religion and in leaving religion. Uh, that's going to be something to look forward to. But before we jump into uh, all of that, uh, we have some news to go through. We were off last week. And so the news backed up a little bit. Uh, we're going to move uh, uh, fairly tersely through the stories, but we, uh, we definitely want to make sure that everybody is on the same page with what is happening in the secular world uh, over the past couple of weeks. And there's definitely some issues on the table happening both here in the United States, but also internationally that deserve some attention and some comment. And we definitely want to, uh, want to begin with that. Scott, how are you doing today?
1: Oh, i'm doing quite well sir thank you and yourself
0: i am i am well as well it's been uh it's been an up and down a uh, few weeks there's been a lot going on as there always is uh, but it feels good to be back in the chair uh, uh, doing the show um, once again. I think that uh what we'd like to start with here is um really a, a stunning development uh in saudi arabia uh there's um there's, there's, there's a case, there's a case there that, um, that, that Scott is going to, going to help us to, uh, to understand. Um, I think, uh, I think we're going to, we're going to source this uh, to uh, the independent in, uh, in the UK.
1: Yeah, that's right. And um, stunning, uh, you know, is the right, seems like the right terminology because it does stun us um, here, but, not so stunning in that it's Saudi Arabia because it just seems it's uh, business as usual. But a man in Saudi Arabia has reportedly been sentenced to death on charges of apostasy after losing two appeals. Several local media, local media reports identified the man as Ahmad al-Shamiri in his 20s, from the town of Hafar al-Batan first came to authorities attention in 2014 after allegedly uploading videos to social media in which he renounced Islam and the Prophet Muhammad. He was arrested on charges of atheism and blasphemy and held in prison before being convicted by a local court and sentenced to death in February 2015. I just want to take a moment there. Held in prison and then convicted of atheism and blasphemy, and the sentence is death.
0: Uh, we, we talked a couple of weeks ago about blasphemy laws around the world. It is a sad reality that there are so many countries still um, that not only have blasphemy laws, but enforce them uh, with strict draconian uh, 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 punishments, horrific But it's not surprising given that it's everywhere. We know that that happens. Uh, We know that it's out there. Uh, We want it to stop. But to be charged with atheism, atheism itself being a crime, uh, it it, it almost doesn't work as a sentence. Charged with atheism. Charged with atheism.
1: Convicted of atheism. Do you believe in God? No, I do not. Guilty. Guilty guilty. So at the time Mr. Shamiri's defense entered an insanity plea adding that his client was under the influence of drugs and alcohol at the time of making videos. So the only logical way to get out of this in Saudi Arabia is to, is to plead insanity or under the influence of intoxicants.
0: Yes. Yeah, so how how else could you possibly uh, uh, think that, that God doesn't exist? Um, how else could you possibly reject this unsubstantiated claim unless you were an insane person or high on mind-altering substances? These are, these are the yeah. only explanations for people doing. You don't Indian.
1: believe the prophet rode a flying horse to the moon? You must be crazy. Um, he lost an appeals court case and a Supreme Court ruled against him earlier this week. While news stories in the last few years consistently identified Mr. Shamir, his identity or sentencing has not been verified by the Saudi authorities. The independence requests for comment from Saudi government representatives were not immediately answered. Under Saudi Arabia's strict religious laws, leaving Islam can be punishable by harsh prison sentences and corporal uh, corporal punishment. and A 2014 string of royal decrees under late King Abdullah redefined atheists as terrorists, according to a report by Human Rights Watch. Last year, a citizen was sentenced to 10 years in prison and 2,000 lashes for expressing atheistic sentiment in hundreds of social media posts. Mr. Shamiri's name and hometown have trended on Arabic-speaking Twitter in the last few days. Some users have even celebrated his sentencing. If you're a low-key atheist, that's fine. But once you talk in public and criticize God or religion, then you shall be punished, one such post-read. I wish there could be live streaming when you cut his head off, said another.
0: The amount of hatred that is continually directed at people just because they don't believe in God. I... I am, I am stunned partially that this kind of thing occurs, but also at the claim that atheists are terrorists. Terrorist. Atheists aren't killing people in the name of no god. It seems that when we find a terrorist in this world, they are killing to promote some kind of politics… Um, like was, was common in Ireland in the 80s, or a religious cause. There are probably terrorists out there of all backgrounds. There are probably terrorists for any label under the sun. But you can't blanket label any group. You can't blanket label all Muslims as terrorists. You can't blanket label all Christians as terrorists. All Irishmen as terrorists. But it makes even less sense to label atheists as terrorists, given that the label atheist means I don't believe in a thing. What are atheists supposed to be uh, killing in the name of? Yeah. The, the entire point of atheism is I don't hold a position here. I don't believe that this claim is true. There's no, there's no reason for an atheist to, to kill people, there's no, nothing to promote.
1: Well, and it, it, human rights violations in, in Saudi Arabia aren't new at all, and we've talked about the other aspects of Islam and their, uh, their treatment of women. And so in Saudi Arabia, under the country's system of guardianship, women's rights and freedom of movement is heavily restricted. They are not allowed to drive and voted for the first time in 2015. Electing Saudi Arabia to protect women's rights is like <clears throat> making arsonists into the town fire chief. UN Watch Director uh, Hillel Noor said, it's absurd. Saudi Arabia has sat on UN Human Rights Council since September of 2015. So they're barely even into that, to that aspect of,
0: of humanity. Yeah, I was, uh, I was noticing that. Um, I, I saw it on, uh, on Twitter. Several people were reposting articles um, reporting that they had been voted on to the, uh, the council for, for women's rights, which, and that's, and that's well said it, it's, it's almost a, uh, a Donald Trump move, right? Get the guy who is suing the EPA, who hates the EPA to run the EPA uh, get an arsonist to run the fire prevention league, get Saudi Arabia to be on the council for women's rights um but let's not forget that Saudi Arabia, um, I, I think that a lot of people sort of um, uh, look right around Saudi Arabia. They sort, of, they sort of allow for a blind spot there um, because Saudi Arabia plays this game of, of poking the bear without getting too close. Um, uh, they've, never, they've never committed genocide against their own people um, they, don't, they don't do concentration camps They have horrific laws and they get enforced And so you have these individual stories that are horrendous and should not But we have uh, in the United States such ties with them Because of, of uh, oil and, and they're, they're an ally in the region and so forth Um, that people just kind of let Saudi Arabia be Saudi Arabia. Let's not forget that Saudi Arabia is where Wahhabism originated. That's how it became a power. Uh, You had uh, 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 warlords, uh, bands of of militant people in the desert a few hundred years ago. Uh, And the strongest one was uh, the original Saud. And he was... Quite strong militarily, and he uh, was approached by uh, uh, Mr. Wahab, who uh, was a, a a holy man. He was a religious scholar, but he had this very extreme interpretation of Islam. Uh, he read it all in, in this in this very we actually need to go and kill infidels. Uh, every little sin is is punishable by death. Uh, Islamist notions. Uh, uh, were very prevalent and because he had such a following religiously and because Saud had such a a strong military power, the two of them basically made a deal. Saud would protect Wahhab and Wahhab would give credibility to Saud. And that potent formula of, which is the antithesis of secularism of military might of political strength, married to religious fervor and authority uh, allowed for for uh, Saud to control that desert, uh, uh, claim it to be his. They founded the original government, and the, the, the Sauds of today are his, uh, are his offspring. The, the books that, that were written based on Wahhab Islam uh, are the ones used by ISIS, are the ones used by uh, al-Qaeda. Uh, these are the most extreme notions of Islam in the modern world that suggest that people should be killed, that women should be disgraced, that that abuse is not only acceptable but should be uh, encouraged. Um, those are Wahhab ideas, and that power coming out of Saudi Arabia is kind of the origin of this version the the, the most problematic problematic aspects. Of Islam as we would see it from a political standpoint originate from that concept. Saudi Arabia is ground zero of extreme modern uh, Muslim uh, uh, fundamentalist uh, terrorism and violence.
1: Yeah, I remember looking up Wahhabism uh, a couple of years ago and just, yeah, it's just appalling. Violence on top of violence all in the name of, as we were just saying before.
0: I, um, we also need to um, do, uh, it's, a, it's a small update on uh, uh, Chechnya. We spoke, uh, I believe it was two weeks ago, about what was happening in uh, Chechnya. Um, Kadyrov, uh, who is uh, the leader in Chechnya, um, is a, um, uh, an, ex, an, ex, an extremist politically uh, He's responsible for a, a litany of human rights abuses um, He is also a Muslim And as we were talking about uh, in the last episode He um, opened a concentration camp in Chechnya um, Where more than 100 men have been rounded up and detained in secret prisons By authorities on suspicion of being gay in recent weeks Uh, With many beaten and tortured, at least four men are alleged to have been killed. Uh, I am again reading from uh, independent.co.uk. Speaking in Parliament, during an urgent question on the persecution and detention of LGBT citizens in the Russian Republic of Chechnya, Minister of State for the Foreign Office Sir Alan Duncan said he had been informed of alleged plans to eliminate the country's gay community by the start of Ramadan, which commences on the 26th of May. Uh, Human rights groups report that these anti-gay campaigns and killings are orchestrated by the head of the Chechen Republic, Ramzan Kadyrov, uh, said Sir Alan. Uh, He has carried out other violent campaigns in the past, and this time he is directing his efforts at the LGBT community. Sources have said that he wants the community eliminated by the start of Ramadan. Sir Alan called the reports of actions taken in Chechnya, a largely Muslim country, as utterly barbaric. One man told CNN people had beaten him with their fists and feet to try to get names of other gay men from him. Then they tied wires to my hands and put metal clippers on my ears to electrocute me. They've got special equipment, which is very powerful. When they shock you, uh, you jump high above the ground. Uh, Sir Allen said the government is using all engagement with Russia to make our voice clear, adding that he raised the issue personally with Russia's Deputy Foreign Minister Vladimir Titov. Uh, while discussing general human rights matters, uh, Donald Trump's ambassador to the UN has said she is disturbed by allegations coming out of Chechnya. of true, this violation of human rights cannot be ignored. Chechen authorities must immediately investigate these allegations, hold everyone involved accountable and take steps to prevent future abuses, she said. Of course, Chechnya has denied all reports. Um, we were we were kind of trying to to wrestle with the idea of, of what exactly here can be done. Even, even our um, ambassador to the UN says that Chechen authorities need to investigate. Um, Of course, the Chechen authorities work underneath Kadyrov. And so I I don't imagine that, that that's anything more than lip service. I don't think that uh, that we can reasonably expect any authority in Chechnya to somehow go against the, the warlord criminal leader of that region um so even even the even the un uh, is at a bit of a loss as to how to get involved here uh however we have been seeing some uh some protests uh people have been gathering at russian embassies to protest the uh the concentration camps um hoping that uh, that russia would be willing to do something about this um which again is is um is tepid at best uh russia also has a has a, has a pretty poor record on treating homosexuals as if they are human beings. Um, and, and uh, that attitude extends to other groups. We talked again a few weeks ago about their attitude towards uh, Jehovah's witnesses and how they are labeling them as terrorists and trying to run that group out of the country. I don't know that we can rely on people like Vladimir Putin to rein in um, the, the, um, the, the, the horror, the draconian attitudes of Kadyrov, um, we again want everybody to be aware of this. Uh, reach out to whoever you think you can. If you are near, uh, if you are if you are in D.C. or if you are listening to us overseas and you have a Russian embassy, um, I think the best we can we can hope for is that you will uh, make your voice heard and try to stand up for the voiceless in this region uh, who are being uh, tortured abused, separated from their families, and in some cases, indeed being killed. Also, with the threat of eradicating this before Ramadan, which begins in one month, we wonder exactly what that is intended to mean, if they will uh, if they will, uh, convince everyone the way that you could torture somebody and get them to, to sign a confession, if they will just get everybody to renounce homosexuality and let them go and call that a victory, or if this could end uh, with a more violent solution of trying to eradicate people that are gay. Um, We're, we're going to continue to, uh, to watch this. And um, our, um, our thoughts, our thoughts and our, and our hearts are, are, are with the, uh, the, uh, the homosexual community in Chechnya.
1: Absolutely. And it's just, like you said, lip service, we're, we're going to, we're going to, ask the people who are doing it to investigate whether or not it's being done. Just doesn't seem like that's going to yield much fruit. Um, so we talked um, uh, a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, about uh, the um, female genital mutilation that occurs uh, in, in Islam. And there's an update on, on that we said, um, you know, this is something that uh, is, is a problem in, uh, you know, theocratic places and you know, where Islam is the state and and etc. I and mean, we don't have to really worry about it here, but you know, apparently we do. Um, there's a doctor accused of this is from the Washington Post a doctor accused of mutilating genitals of young girls defends her procedure as religious practice. The, uh, attorney for a Detroit area doctor accused of mutilating the genitals of young girls, acknowledges that her client performed a procedure, but she says it was part of a religious practice. The revelation came during a detention hearing on Monday, a few days after Jumana Narzwala was charged in what authorities say is the first case of its kind in the country. Shannon Smith said in federal court in Michigan that her client removed the girl's genital membrane as part of a custom practiced by the Dawoodi Bora, a small sect of Indian Muslims in which Narjwala is a part. This comes from the Detroit Free Press. Uh, Narjwala, 44, of Northville, Michigan, was charged last week with female genital mutilation, transportation with intent to engage in criminal sexual activity and making a false statement to a federal officer. Federal investigators say... She performed genital mutilations on two seven-year-old girls at a medical clinic in Livonia, just outside Detroit. The procedures were performed secretly after business hours and without medical billing records, according to a criminal complaint. Narjwala, an emergency room doctor for the Henry Ford Health System in Detroit, initially denied performing genital mutilation on children. She told investigators earlier this month that she's aware the procedure is illegal in the United States. During the hearing, a federal judge decided to keep Narswala incarcerated while the criminal case is pending. I think there's clear and convincing evidence that your client poses a danger to the community, U.S. Magistrate Judge Mona Mazoub said, according to the Detroit Free Press. According to the complaint, the girl's family traveled last February from Minnesota to Michigan, where they were brought to see Narswala. One of the girls told investigators that she was taken to Michigan for a special girl's trip. In describing the procedure, she said it was to get the germs out. The other girl said she screamed after a painful shot. Both girls said they were told not to talk about what happened. Marjwala is one of two Michigan doctors arrested in connection to genital mutilation this past week. I, I need to I need to back up here. What what the girls' testimony is? They were they were brought for a special girls' trip and that. They were told that it was to get the germs out. So, I mean, they are lying to seven-year-old children. Uh, uh, first off, tricking them to, that you're going by, by telling them that it's special just for the girls, and then telling them that there's, there's something in you that's wrong. A part of you is wrong. It's dirty. It's germy. We're going to take it out, and then you'll be right. okay. Right. And that part is the ability to enjoy sex in the future when you're an adult just like every other human on this planet
0: gets to? We, we, we were talking about this a few weeks ago, and we were, we were looking at numbers that suggested that there are um, over 20 million uh, women and girls on the planet that have um, been subjected to female genital mutilation. Um, the Los Angeles Times reporting on this same story, Wrote uh, carried out mostly on girls between infancy and age 15. The ritual is intended to reduce sexual pleasure and promiscuity, and to prepare a girl for marriage. It may involve a partial or total removal of the, a removal of the clitoris, excision of the inner and outer folds of the vulva, or the narrowing of the vaginal con, uh, the vaginal opening. Um, when they when they were talking to uh, these girls um, afterwards. Uh, one of them said that she was experiencing pain all the way down to her ankles uh, from whatever they had they had done to her uh, against the law and against, as we've said, even the logic of religion. This idea that God created people precisely the way he wants except for he, – he made us almost perfect. Almost, almost just so. God made us, and the only thing that's left to do is for humans to improve upon God's design by removing one of the most beautiful organs that we are endowed with.
1: Chop off the extra sensitive bits of our naughty parts. It's, it's just Ridiculous.
0: This this should be um, deeply troubling. We were we were we were pleased to be able to say just a few weeks ago that as far as we knew, uh, this was not happening in the United States, and in fact, it is illegal. But um, you know, we spoke we spoke too soon. Turn around, and uh, here it is happening. This is this is apparently happened to several girls. We don't know how many um, over the last twelve years or so. Um and like when we were talking about uh gay conversion camps, what are the odds that it's just one? For everyone that you know about, this is surely happening elsewhere. This is why we fight. This is why this monotheistic attitude, when taken to its extreme, becomes so dangerous. These girls didn't make a decision, but they are now saddled with this for the rest of their lives. They will. They will potentially never get the same fulfilled sex life that that every human gets to have just from being born. That's been removed and, from them.
1: And that's the best case uh, after this has already happened, because as you said, the one girl had pain down to her ankles. You, you, there could be permanent nerve damage. There's risks of infection. There's all kinds of you know risks involved in this this procedure beyond just what should be a human right, the ability to enjoy sex as an adult.
0: It is disgusting when it happens here in a doctor's office, when it happens with sterilized tools in a controlled environment, when it is done by somebody with a medical license. It is horrific in that case. There are places in Africa where this is happening to girls by the hundreds of thousands, and it's being done with rudimentary tools just at home, just just in public sometimes, people use stones to do this, sawing away at the genitals of human beings.
1: Of oh, defenseless, immature human beings who have no say in the matter.
0: Okay, and are, before aren't, we get...
1: aren't given the say.
0: Right. It's not... If you want to make this decision for yourself, by all means… If you are a woman and you think, I don't like having a clitoris, and I think that it's somehow unholy, and based on my personal faith, I want it removed, and so I'm going to find a doctor as a consenting adult to have it removed, you know what? More power to you. Go and do what you want to do. Don't do this to children. I, I, why do we need to talk about it? This is so obvious. Don't, rule one, don't mutilate kids. Pretty,
1: pretty awesome. Yes, we can all agree on that. Now
0: let's move forward. All right. <clears throat> before before this gets this gets just just so crushingly uh, sad. Let's let's move on to um, to something a little less violent. Um, the uh, the mayor of San Antonio made some interesting comments this week. Um, basically, uh, the uh, the mayor Ivy Taylor managed to insult. Uh, both Atheist and the poor in a single speech, um, a single, a single talk rather um, earlier this month while speaking at a mayoral forum, mayor Taylor was asked about the deepest systemic cause of generational poverty. Mayor Taylor replied, quote, to me, it's broken people, people not being in a relationship with their creator and therefore not being in good relationship with their families and their communities and not being productive members of society. I think that's the ultimate answer. Patheos uh, writes, in short, the mayor responded by claiming generational poverty is caused by broken people who don't believe in God, essentially making the ludicrous claim that atheism causes poverty. Adding insult to injury, she concluded her answer about poverty by claiming that the deepest systemic cause of generational poverty is not part of her job description, noting that's not something that I work on from my position as mayor of the community. Now, that statement, um, I actually think is a good one if she's referring to uh The cause being atheism that 's getting rid of atheism or helping people to not be broken through God is absolutely not her job uh as mayor uh so i'm i 'm pleased to see that she doesn 't think that uh, she 's supposed to be be fixing non believers uh, as an elected official uh, that's that's that 's at least uh not a bad thing um, but at the same time you've now you've now boiled down this complex issue um and she does go on to talk about how uh uh education is a, is a way to try to fix poverty which would have nothing to do unless you're talking about educating people about god would do nothing to fix what you're claiming is the problem here um uh but it, it's it's pretty disturbing to have somebody just openly saying as mayor yeah, uh, people are poor because uh, they're broken. And why are they broken? Well, we can define broken people as people that don't believe in a creator, that don't have a relationship with their creator. Um, that's that's pretty gross to me. That's pretty uh, that's pretty disturbing. Um, if you're uh, if you're living in San Antonio, write a letter to your mayor. Let her know that you uh, that you don't appreciate that kind of bullshit. Um, let's let's. We we are we are a little behind the ball here. Why don't we uh why don't we I want to I want to let you talk about this uh this this science story from uh National Geographic that you brought to my attention, Scott. That's that's a that's a pretty neat thing.
1: Yeah, this is uh this is pretty exciting. Um <clears throat> evolution in action is the title of the article, a lizard moving from uh eggs to live birth. So um Evolution has been caught in the act, according to scientists who are decoding how a species of Australian lizard is abandoning egg laying in favor of live birth. Along the warm coastal lowlands of New South Wales, the yellow-bellied three-toed skink lays eggs to reproduce. But individuals of the same species living in the state's higher, colder mountains are almost all giving birth to live young. Only two other modern reptiles, another skink species and a European lizard, use both types of reproduction. Evolutionary records shows that nearly 100 reptile lineages have independently made the transition from egg laying to live birth in the past. And today about 20% of all living snakes and lizards give birth to live young only. But modern reptiles that have live young provide only a single snapshot on a long evolutionary timeline, said study co-author James Stewart a biologist at the East Tennessee State University. The dual behavior of the yellow-bellied three-toed skeet therefore offers scientists a rare opportunity. By studying differences among populations that are in different stages of this process, you can begin to put together what looks like the transition from one birth style to another. So uh, eggs to baby switch creates nutrient problems. One of the mysteries of how reptiles switch from eggs to live babies is how the young eat their nourishment before birth, or how they get their nourishment from birth. In mammals, a highly specialized placenta connects the fetus to the uterus wall, allowing the baby to take up oxygen and nutrients from the mother's blood and pass back waste. In egg-laying species, the embryo gets nourishment from the yolk, but the calcium absorbed from the porous shell is also an important nutrient source. So some fish and reptiles. Meanwhile, oh yeah, yeah, something you'd say for? Her.
0: I I just I I get so excited. I just I love when I mean they they come pretty quick. Um, uh, stories about how we keep uncovering uh, the, these kinds of things happening in real time, where we can actually go and see this stuff occurring inside of a single generation of humans. We can see several generations of another type of organism, and we can we can see um uh the power of natural selection actually occurring it's really really neat uh and it's it's something that 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 i find uh, uh very inspiring i love nature and i love uh science and and the natural processes that are going on all around us um but let's not let's not forget that this is this is far from a, a special example um this is this right. is a specific example but this is we we've been seeing this uh, in the last in the last few years um, they found uh, 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 mice in Death Valley uh, living in different parts of the desert um, where they uh, end up end up being affected by natural selection to have different color coats. Uh, uh, browner rock versus grayer rock browner coats versus grayer coats uh, the same species but it's sort of the introduction of potential speciation occurring um, they, have, they have found this uh, among mice in New York City where even though the city is very dense and occupies a fairly small area because of all of the buildings and traffic between uh, small parts of the city uh, individual groups of mice can be, can be sort of isolated in particular parks Uh, They have found mice that have uh, genetic modifiers emerging in parks that have different uh, metal uh, presences, uh, different types of radiation that they might be exposed to in different parts of the park. And while they are the same species, uh, different mice end up having uh, differences in their genetic code to allow them to uh, uh, better resist uh, poisons and, and toxins that they might come across uh, in their environment, snails in cities, cities are, are fascinating because it's a new environment. It, it's not something that's been around for more than uh, the, the, at least the, the modern urban city, you know, glass, steel, skyscrapers, asphalt. This, this is the last couple hundred years that these have been emerging, uh, places like New York City and Los Angeles. And so animals that live there um, are adapting to this new environment. Uh, there are snails in cities, I think, I want to say in Germany. Uh, and they're actually launching an application that you can download. Uh, uh, they're They're sort of crowdsourcing information about these snails. If you find one of these snails, they live all over the city they'll they'll crawl on the buildings and stuff. They want you to take pictures of the snails. There's information in the app about how to measure for certain traits that they're seeing emerge uh, amongst these snails, where because of the higher heat, uh, their shells are becoming uh, more and more transparent uh, as a way to try to disperse the, the, the higher temperatures uh, that, that are, that are, uh, that, that are amplified by the, uh, by the, 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 nature of a city. Um, uh, this, this happens all of the time. It's just exciting when a new one comes along and we get to, we get to kind of go, wow, and talk about it for a moment.
1: It is exciting when a new one comes along, but, but you're right, it happens all the time. It reminds me of, um, I, I was watching a, uh, an old um, atheist experience the other day and someone was asking for proof of evolution and and they asked Matt Bill how to eat, where are all the transitional species and um, Matt said everything is a transitional species <laughs> and it's everything yeah. is and, and you don't have to look anywhere for a missing link, everything is a missing link to the next thing that's coming
0: right the missing link thing, uh, I mean, has been debunked to an extent that anybody still trying to use that is 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 kind of at least outdated in their understanding. Uh, here's the thing about about asking for um, missing links. Let's say that 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 we find what what you could call. Inaccurately, missing links. Let's say that we found between. Uh, we, we won't. We, we this won't happen. But let's just say that we found sure. uh, six uh, 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 links, six six transitions between us and Homo erectus. Well, what has that done? That's it's opened put up twelve the door. more gaps. Right. Now there's five more. Well, where's the where's the transition between all of those steps? Every time you present uh, a missing link or a transitional fossil, all that does is now th- you've got more and more and more, which means there are more and more gaps that they can demand that you fill. It's a it, it's a it's a ridiculous premise. I was talking to somebody on Twitter the other day, uh, and uh, her her bio uh, said you know uh, sister mother whatever whatever whatever, and then the last the last part of her bio was uh, transitional fossil. I thought that was rather clever. <laughs> fantastic
1: you know, and we, we talk about um, logical fallacies on the show um, and and the, and the fallacy of uh, like God of the gaps you know, community of the fallacy of God of the gaps is um, common but what's amazing to me is once there is a gap how they will do anything they can to try and shove God into it regardless you know, the size of the gap or if their God will fit in it or not it's a gap I'm putting in there but yes, I encourage everybody to go to National Geographic and read more on the the yellow-bellied, three-toed skink and its evolutionary process from egg-laying to live birth it's a fascinating read
0: we'll uh we'll make sure to uh to link that on uh on the i s m twitter account uh, i s m podcast underscore uh, and if uh, if you don't find it on your own you can uh, you can follow us there and uh, and get the link uh, and read more about that yourself um Scott, let us know what we're doing for truth pursuit this week yeah
1: um I was talking um this last week with someone and um just considering their their, their time in religion and now their time out. And I was wondering why do people apologize for, you know, the atrocities of, of, you know, in their religion's name or that their, that their God uh, itself performed. And I asked um, if, if they thought apologizing for God's wrongdoing is akin to uh, sort of Stockholm syndrome. And so that's what I want to talk about this week. Um, are, are people just so fearful of this captor, their religion, their God, that they they uh, they start to sympathize with him and, and defend him, even though he's not doing very well for them in the long run.
0: Yeah, that's a, um, that's a great topic. Uh, it reminds me of three weeks ago when we were talking about uh, inculcation, where someone becomes uh, so very convinced that uh, their religion or doctrine is true, that anything that's done in the name of that, uh, of that religion, or that that religion suggests... Well, it's meant to be interpreted differently, or you know, the 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 people that, that kill or do horrific things in the name of this religion—they're not real Christians or Muslims. Um, it, it it makes one wonder what what is what is so uh, what is so valuable here that no matter what is done in the name of this of this club that you want to be a member of, uh, that you're willing to to find a way well, that it's... isn't really representative.
1: Absolutely. And, and, it, and it, it goes like, um, you, you, you know, you're you're in the, the bank robbery situation, whatever, for 12 hours. And he has clearly said, you know, nobody stand up or I'll shoot you. And someone stands up and they get shot. And then later, uh, one of the victims will say, well, he told us not to stand up. So she basically shot herself. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what we hear all the time. Right. You, you send yourself to hell. God isn't sending you to hell. Right. It's you sending yourself to hell. Admit it.
0: Hmm. That um that's a powerful discussion to have. Um give give Scott a follow at El Torino and watch for uh a scope later in the week. Um that's something that's something that uh that everybody uh can engage. Uh, on. That's a fantastic subject, and I'm sure that there will be a lot of people who, who might um, want to push back against this notion, but who also might recognize those sorts of traits um, oh, in yeah. their uh, own I'm,
1: I'm, I'm also just talking out of my ass. I don't have a degree in psychology or anything. It's
0: just, <laughs> just
1: an idea that I have. It seems fun to entertain. Ought to make for a great discussion.
0: I agree. That's going to be good. Okay, let's... Um, uh, you know what? I think uh, before we before we jump in anything deeper, uh, I'm very very excited because this week we have got a brand new logic that fallacy. Oh, that's fantastic! It's time for
2: it's not logical.
0: That is illogical. Instinct. Why are people so illogical? It's perfectly logical. That's like the worst logic ever. Logic that. Fallacy. So this is a segment of the show where we present a vignette, a, a, a very short story, uh, and somewhere in the story, if you can, if you can catch it, there is a logical fallacy that is being committed by uh, by someone or, or in a situation inside of. The vignette and we uh, we play the vignette and we encourage people to uh, call in with our guesses if you think that you've spotted the logical fallacy give us a call six four six five six four nine five five one If nobody gets it by the end of the show, uh, what we'll do is we will we will uh, post the uh, vignette in its entirety on Twitter and then uh, everybody can can have a good time reading it uh, at their leisure and uh, and and trying to spot it uh, on there. We will of course uh, talk about it more next week if it is not solved this week. Uh, the segment is sponsored by Recovering from Religion. Uh, this is uh as we've said in previous shows a fantastic organization for anybody out there who is struggling with doubt who is trying to find their way out of religion uh who maybe feels uh, alone or like uh, they are struggling with with trying to um come to grips with uh new labels or with a a a a loss or lack of god belief uh, especially those who are in a community or in a family where that is very very prevalent uh this is a this is an organization that uh, that helps people who are struggling with that. They have a 24 hour news line, uh, news line, uh, call in line where you can uh, you can talk to uh, talk to uh, people uh, on the phone who can who can help to, to guide you through that and be there to listen to uh, to what you are dealing with. Um, we always we always tell people um, that they that they should refuse to be alone. These can be these can be s- strange and, and difficult questions. When you're first beginning to doubt, and we want to make sure that people have access to that, we, of course, want to thank Recovering From Religion for sponsoring this segment. Um, What I'm going to do is I'm going to play the vignette for this week. So everybody, stop what you're doing, pay close attention, and see if you can spot the logical fallacy in this week's story. When the lights came up, a robe was placed around George's naked shoulders. Her new brothers and sisters in the order stood circling her, all smiles and nods. A man in front of her spoke. It was a voice she had heard earlier, narrating her journey through the three rooms of the ceremony. Welcome to Mortalitus, Georgia Lynn Davies, Mortal Life. Please speak to us for the first time with your new voice as a 10th level member of your true family, the Holy Order of Scientism. The circle of faces looked at her expectantly, and Georgia thought back over all three phases of the ceremony she had just passed through. The ninety minutes of sitting, waning in silence, another ninety minutes of feasting and massage in the room he had called gestation, and the room they now stood in, birth, with its confusing physical challenges in the dark, and helping hands reaching out of the blackness at the final moment to help her leap a distance she could not have crossed without them. Emotion welled up and closed her throat, The onlookers waited patiently for her to find her words and voice. Finally, she spoke. Thank you all. I am so happy. I know more than ever that this order is true. How else could such a powerful ceremony have possibly been developed without the direct access to the truth that only scientism allows? Her new brothers and sisters whispered a hissed yes, embraced her, and escorted her out. Man, these are, these are just captivating. Um, I've said it before. I'll probably say it again. Uh, we get done with one of these, and I immediately want to know, who are these people? What happens next? Who is Georgia? <laughs> they're so – it's oh. just – they're brilliantly, brilliantly written. Um, okay, so uh, for, for, the, for the especially sharp out there, uh, you may have caught the, the logical fallacy. Feel free to give us a call at 646-564-9551 and give us your guess. Um, and we will, uh, we, will, uh, we will put anybody who gives us a call uh, on the air to, uh, to announce uh, what they think uh, the logical fallacy is this week. Again, if nobody gets it, we'll put it on Twitter in the next few days. And uh, next week, we will discuss it a little bit more on the show. Again, uh, big thanks to Recovering from Religion. And we want to make sure that everybody who might need that resource uh, has access to it. It's Recovering from religion.org make sure to give them a follow on Twitter make sure to check out their website and use them if you uh, if you are in a place of doubt and you need the extra resources Um, they do uh, they do a lot of really phenomenal work all right so it's it's we're 50 minutes in and we're just now there was so much news to get through we're just now getting to our main discussion um, we really want to talk about uh, spirituality. Um, not, not just spirituality in itself, but spirituality without God. Um, the, the idea that spirituality is not something that needs to be uh, tied up with religion. Now, uh, I've heard people many, many times say something along the lines of, I'm not religious, I'm just spiritual. And... I, I try to stop and have a conversation with anybody who says that because I'm very curious as to what they mean. And most of the time, what I find is what they mean is I don't go to church. A lot of the times, what they mean is, well, no, I, I mean, yeah, Jesus and, and salvation and sin and heaven and hell and all of that. But I, I don't, I don't go to church. I don't, I don't believe in organized religion. Um, and so they're using spiritual to just mean religious without, without the bells and whistles, religious without the Sunday services. Um, but Spirituality, I think, uh, goes much further than that, and it's a word that I think atheists, agnostics, secularists should uh, should should look at and confront, and uh, be prepared to be able to to speak on this. Um, I've heard uh, uh, prominent atheists hear the word and immediately kind of kind of recoil. Uh, I know that Bill Maher did it um, when when Sam Harris went on his program. Uh, this was a couple of years ago, but I remember watching it. Uh, uh, Sam Harris uh, wrote a book about spirituality um, and uh, Bill Maher was slightly annoyed from the get-go that the, this, this, I, I'm not, I'm not spiritual. I'm an atheist. The two, the two do not need to be exclusive. And I think that what we want to do is we want to talk about how they don't need to be um, exclusive.
1: Yeah. Uh... Speaking of Sam Harris, neuroscientist and philosopher, uh, Sam Harris once said a true spiritual practitioner is someone who has discovered that it is possible to be at ease in the world for no reason, if only for a few moments at a time, and that such ease is synonymous with transcending the apparent boundaries of the self.
0: That's that's pretty good. Um That's pretty good. Uh, Spirituality, people talk about having all kinds of spiritual experiences that don't need to have anything to do uh, with religion or with doctrine or with anything outside of the self. when they, when they do uh, studies involving uh, uh, hallucin- hallucinogens, for example, uh, there are, there are, there's, a, there's a drug called, uh, the shorthand is DMT, and people that uh, – there have been studies done where people will, will do this in a controlled environment. They will, they will use the DMT, and then they will talk about their experiences after the fact, and many of them uh, talk about having what they can only call a spiritual experience. Um, they're not referring to prophets or, or gods per se, or, or, or necessarily anything like that. Some of them have a sense of something supernatural. Uh, a lot of people, when you when you start to study this, and uh, a good resource for this is uh, Joe Rogan. Um, uh, he talks a lot about about DMT. I think he actually went somewhere in South America where they use this rather regularly and engaged in them. In it himself. Uh, he's talked about it on his podcast, the Joe Rogan experience several times, uh, and I think he may have uh, also spoken about it in other venues. Um, but but people are capable of of altering their minds uh, with some kind of chemical and and in that in that altered perception, they're they're quite capable of of experiencing something that. That transcends uh, materialism. Um, that becomes a, a transcendent uh, experience for the individual, where they they feel a closer connection with themselves, or they feel that uh, that altered state uh, uh, helps them to see something with a, with a, with a new set of eyes, so to speak. They can see it from a new perspective. Uh, some people uh, talk about. Uh, uh, being able to to look at their own life and kind of seeing it uh, from further away, uh, being able to to sort of see the macro instead of being so focused on the micro, and it sort of can allow people to to sort of refresh, uh, reset um, themselves. Um, spirituality can also come from meditation uh it can come from people who are struck by something beautiful and find themselves uh uh, thinking of things in, in a brand new way uh new parents will talk about this the first time they lay eyes on their new child there is a connection and a responsibility and some sort of wonder at the at the at the amazing nature of life uh that that Shows them something intangible, something different that 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 changes the way that the mind is working uh, in such a way that that presents something that we can call spiritual. Uh, This is this is not something I think that we need to uh, be concerned about. Spirituality is 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 a is a a very is a very good thing. It can be very, very healthy. Um, uh, We uh, we we uh, we were looking into this and um, there are, of course, various studies that have reported a positive correlation between spirituality and mental well-being in both healthy people and those encountering a range of physical illnesses or psychological disorders. Uh, spiritual individuals tend to be optimistic, report greater social supports, and experience higher intrinsic meaning in life, strength, and inner peace. Um, now, we want to follow that up with... We're we're not saying here that, that we should go out and hunt for spirituality wherever we can get it, especially given that so many people that would uh call themselves a spiritual authority would say, Well, it's 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 the cross. Um it's Allah. It's uh it's 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 Gilgamesh or it's Wotan or it's Zenu or any of the other uh, any of the other claims. Um uh those things are, are apparently providing spirituality for people, but they go the extra step, including a whole bunch of actual claims, uh, assertions about uh, things that transcend reality, that, that you've gone a step too far when you begin to ascribe what you're feeling to some sort of supernatural power. Um, uh, I want to follow uh, that that study with another study. Uh, Masters and Spielman, they conducted a, a meta-analysis of all the available and reputable research examining the effects of distant intercessory prayer. We talked about this during the prayer episode uh, a couple of months ago. They found no discernible health effects from being prayed for by others. In fact, some people did worse in hospitals when they knew that they were being prayed for. Uh, prayed for. Uh, and, of course, we've, uh, we've talked about that uh, quite a bit, so we won't get into it too much tonight. Um, the, 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 the point here, when taken together, these two facts suggest that spirituality can serve a benefit for human beings, but these benefits are internal. There is no good reason to believe that prayer works under any circumstances in the material world, and so any benefit gained from prayer is actually personal and psychological. It's the feeling that there is a caring God that can provide a benefit, not the actual existence of said God.
1: It's a placebo effect. Essentially. Uh, you, you believe it to be so, so subconscious is convinced of it, and confirmation bias at work, at its finest, and and voila, you you feel that's the way it is. One of the many common accusations leveled at atheism is that it's necessarily adjacent to nihilism. Nihilism, I think, can indeed become a tempting notion for those who realize that we are probably unsupervised in the universe and that there is no good reason to believe there is any sort of universal plan into which we all fit in some way. This has, however, always struck me as ridiculous, and I think the reason is, the reason why is best captured by Dan Barker, who said, asking if there is no God, what is the purpose of life, is like asking if there is no master, whose slave shall I be? If your purpose in life is to submit, then your meaning comes from Flattering the ego of a person whom you should des- detest. Nihilism from atheism has always seemed to me to be sorrow upon realizing that no one is there to witness how pathetic you are. It suggests that everyone would be worth caring about uh, as long as there would be theological carrot and stick, celestial judge, or a higher justification for becoming for being compassionate or hateful. But since there is not, what's the point? This really doesn't. This really does baffle me you know uh, part of this kind of makes me think about um you know back ba- back to the truth pursuit the the um you know the Stockholm syndrome who 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 if there's no master whose slave am i going to be who who am i going to submit to i should detest this person but instead i'm going to flatter their ego and just praise them and worship them and hope hope that they'll take me in their group
0: yeah um yeah, nihilism, I, and we we discussed this a little bit before the show, you and I, um, and and we were we were we were seeing if there was a correlation between um, nihilism, at least in relation to atheism, could potentially, uh, and, and, and and I might be very wrong here, I, I'm 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 slightly spitballing, um, we we might be able to call atheistic nihilism the absence of spirituality. Um, it has nothing to do with religion. Spirituality, in fact, in my view, should not come from religion. I think that's a that's a bad source for spirituality, uh, and I will and I will happily explain why as we as we move along. Um, but I I I think that this is this is kind of the key. Th- this this need for validation, um, this this acknowledgement that there is no validation somehow, uh, seems to rob some people um, of purpose. Uh, I find this troubling. I, I'm not sure why I seem immune to this notion because I've met I've met several atheists who uh, travel down this road who say, um, well, if if there if there's if there's no God and and I'm, and I'm fine with that. I'm, I'm rather glad that there that there isn't a God. But but given that there isn't some broader purpose, then what's the point? Eventually, this will all burn. Eventually, the solar system will die. Eventually, eventually. I mean, we're talking about billions of years in the future, and they're, they're super concerned about what that says about the 70 or 80 years they have now on this planet uh, without there being this afterlife concept, without there being some grander purpose to it all. Uh, They can struggle sometimes to find a purpose. I think that nihilism is quite apparently uh, self-defeating, but I'm not quite sure why God not being part of the picture defeats it. In fact, for me, I think that nihilism – and I'm I'm surely in a minority here – I think that nihilism should be more associated with religion. What is the purpose of any of this if it's all going to be destroyed eventually? The, the whole point is to make it to heaven. This is just God's waiting room. We're, we're all just here to figure out how to be less sinful and how to employ faith so that we can eventually make it into heaven and he can destroy the earth. Nothing that you do here should have any point if you think that it was all invented as, as a game uh, so that we can all either find God or not and then face the rest well, of eternity based on that I decision. See.
1: I think you're right. I think you're onto something because there's there's um, there are several points that comes across in the conversation with the with the theists, with the religious. Um, on one point, it'll be the morals question that they give you. Where do your morals come from if there is no God? Why aren't you just, you could just, now you can just kill and rape and do whatever you want because it's just a natural world, right? What does it matter? And they, they, they use it constantly or um, if we ask um, would you still hold your belief if there wasn't an afterlife and the promise of the reward, I well, don't know. I wouldn't be anymore because it doesn't matter to me. The only thing that matters to me is what I get out of it at the end. Otherwise, fuck it. It's not important. It's not from God.
0: I wondered if nihilism isn't something that humans struggle with and religion is a way to fix that. It's not that religion is the thing and without it, Nihilism occurs. I think that religion is supposed to be an attempt at a stopgap measure to avoid uh, nihilistic thinking. But that is, that is the great tragedy here. Uh, instead of it being uh, spiritual, instead of finding uh, a sense of belonging and, and a desire to live life to the fullest and, and, a, and a way to define the meaning of your own life, rather than ascribing that to the desires written down about a god 2,000 years ago in an illiterate part of the desert. Uh, it's it's very broken to do that. It's very it's very uh, small. I think um, to to instead of looking for spirituality where it is well sourced, to instead uh, look for it amongst religions. Um, I very much like um, what what Christopher Hitchens says about this um, this subject, and I'm going to uh, I'm going to I'm going to sort of paraphrase. Um, something that I've heard him say um, during, during lectures, he says, I would encourage anybody who hasn't yet to go and look at the images that we have recorded through the Hubble telescope, the, the, the distant galaxies, the beautiful swirling colors of millions of stars, all orbiting in, in far away reaches. And that's a single point. There are billions of galaxies, each one with with millions of stars. That is remarkable. That is is transcendent. That is beautiful. Now, compare that to the burning bush. How can they compare? Why would you look for spirituality in this ancient, broken, contradictory, unscientific doctrine instead of… All of the places where it can actually exist, all of the places where we should find it, um, in, an appreciation for, of transcendent human experiences is something we do not want to attack or discourage. It is when these experiences are unjustifiably ascribed to supernatural claims that we wince. The pattern seeking mind wishes to find an answer for the inexplicable and those who are religious are already more than willing to employ confirmation bias to support their faith. Spirituality is beautiful. Spirituality that is then relied on to support negative ideas or preposterous claims is not. That's a bastardization of spirituality. Um, that, that, same, that same lecture from Hitchens, he goes on to talk about if you want to find spirituality from a good source, try reading a page of Stephen Hawking. Think about what Einstein says. The miracle of physics is that there are no miracles. It always works. These ideas, these, the, the laws of nature, the, the, the way that, that, that particles interact, the way that, that, that matter and motion occur, it doesn't fail. It doesn't stop working. It isn't ever suspended in the favor of, of Joshua or Jonah or or some character in the Bible that's the that's the majesty of it that it doesn't end up being suspended in some miraculous fashion that should be a sense of 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 spiritual connection that is that is incredible i i think that we would not have found any of the wondrous things that can inspire feelings of spirituality had we been satisfied with the simplistic attempts at answers posited by religion, they already have the answers and move forward uninterested in the majesty of discovery and doubt. Think about the power of a black hole. Think about the timescale of a 14 billion year old universe Think about the revelation of science in being able to show us more about the natural world than we would otherwise be able to perceive. Spirituality comes from doubt. Spirituality, at least for an atheist, comes from wonder, comes from being able to look at the world and not be immune to being awe-inspired, of seeing that, When we are not satisfied with the answers posited by our ancestors, when we instead dig deeper and strive for answers, when we hold up the human spirit, there's the word again, of exploration, when we engage our inquisitive natures and we try to learn about the environment in which we we live, we can find amazing answers and uncover more and more questions and it's a never-ending journey of enlightenment and of discovery of exploration into the unknown that's a beautiful notion how much grander is that than to sit back and say yeah we already have we already have the solution it's already been figured out God did it and he works in mysterious ways and why bother asking questions in fact perhaps asking questions is heretical. Perhaps asking questions is insulting to the prime mover of all of this. I don't see that as a good source of spirituality. I see that as a good way of killing spirituality, of killing the grand mysteries of the world, of killing that which makes us human. The desire to look up and always ask why again and again, to try to find solutions to our problems, to strive for progress, to continue studying. All right, I, I feel as though I've I've dominated this segment ever so slightly. Um, if you want to jump in, Scott, let me know where you're where you're at on all of this uh, before I uh, before I move before I move on.
1: No, uh, I think you're spot on with all of it. I love what Hudson had to say. That video that you showed me earlier today it was just uh, I, I told you when, after I watched it, like the ending of it, where he just sort of like thanks for giving me the chance to say this was it just landed so heavy for me moved me it was it was an, it was a great video he
0: uh he continually uh, continually inspires me um i've i've always found um i've always found uh comfort and interest in uh in listening to um uh uh to uh to mr hitchens
1: um here's something uh from robert hamilton uh the religious fear the unknown it's not inspiring it's frightening the unknown isn't inspiring to them it scares them and they want to have an answer for it
0: i believe that i was on mute there There Um, (laughs) i I, I,
1: I I, wondered what happened sorry about yeah that's, that's
0: I, I almost uh, I almost screamed a call and then uh, and then I thought no I, I should probably uh, I should probably share this first I I wanted to uh, to share before we move forward uh, some thoughts that I that I jotted down uh, today precisely uh, on this on this subject um, for me spirituality is an undefined set of feelings that inspire hope or excitement for the future I am certainly capable of awe and wonder. I can stand transfixed at the night sky, aware of the incomprehensible vastness before me. I sense the power in a good conversation, hidden and buzzing between the words, in the kinds of discussions that reach towards dawn and make the night evaporate faster than expected. The types of conversations that have led me to some of the most fascinating people I have ever met, that have paid intangible dividends in intellectual exercise and the pleasures of friendly debate. I am sensitive to the notions of romantic love and find the joy... Radiating from a couple bound in its magical embrace Infectious and inspiring The most powerful feelings I have ever felt Are tied up with a deep and pure love for my partner and mate The woman who fills my life with joy And the richest companionship one can imagine Here is where materialist ceases to be a complete enough title Friendship cannot be weighed or measured directly Yet it exists in our direct experiences The existence of friendship is demonstrable Regardless of its immeasurable nature I believe that friendship exists without needing an ounce of faith. And when I experience friendship, when I see the beauty in its lack of definition, its ability to be something different to every person, the intoxicating emotions associated with it that remain so strong as it is enjoyed and not necessarily acknowledged, I find myself experiencing something that can easily be described as spiritual. The natural world presents remarkable wonders and awe-inspiring sights. What an amazing thing to gaze at a nebula, or the complex poetry of life thriving at the bottom of a pitch-black ocean, or gaze upon the tremendous power of a lightning storm rolling across the Rocky Mountains. What incredible feelings of achievement and thrilling optimism one can visit upon watching a fellow human walking on the surface of our moon, or performing a complex surgery that has the power to save a life, or writing an honest poem that can explore these very concepts with a finer elegance than this writer can muster. What a truly transcendent experience to hold the skull of a distant ancestor and imagine the world in which Autopithecus or any of the Australopithecines must have called home. What thoughts rushed through their early brains when they saw that same night sky? How could Homo habilis have ever imagined the incredible progress her distant offspring would forge? In that vein, what incredible wonders will our scions build on our comparatively crude achievements? Our long story is, for me, The definition of wonder, an uncontainable exploration of powerful curiosity and endless questioning. These thoughts seem to defeat nihilism instantly and make small questions like, What is the point? evaporate under the crushing spirituality of my connection with my species and our colored story. If you are unimpressed with the things that exist in this world because it bothers you that no one is looking back from those stars pleased with his children's accomplishments, it may be time to consider growing up. What incredible power there is in learning, in sharing, in building. In exploring. Love yourself, love your species, love your planet, love your galaxy, your universe, your time, your reality. Love the things you have. Don't insult your birthright or your incredible chance at life by cynically behaving as though all this is not enough. Reject solipsism. Reject nihilism. Reject imagined masters and fairy tales about afterlife. You're already alive. Don't waste it.
1: Fantastic. Okay. Moving on to the next part of our show that I am so excited for. I just, I can't wait. I've been an atheist for 21 years now, but it's only in the past five or so that I've been outspoken and proactive in the public aspect of the debate, if you will, between atheists and theists. During that time, I've had the privilege of meeting several wonderful people, atheists and theists alike, involved in the conversation. My esteemed co host being high ranked amongst them. About a year ago, I met Kate, a pastor who was struggling with doubt and reaching out to the secular community with questions. I and several others left with the opportunity to have a conversation with her and we were so glad that we did. Kate was open and honest in that first talk that lasted about three hours. If she didn't know, she would say, I don't know. If she couldn't square something from her religion with reality, she wouldn't. Needless to say that I enjoyed that conversation with her that night and the many that we have had over the last year since. And I am pleased to say that we have her here with us tonight so that we can have another one of those great talks. Kate, welcome to the show. How are you doing?
3: I'm doing great. I loved that last thing you read. I think I need it. I need it on a poster or something. I'm doing great. (laughs) How are you guys? (laughs) Uh,
0: I'm, I'm having, I'm having a fantastic evening. This has been a lot of fun thus far. And we are, we are so, so looking forward to our conversation with you. I apologize how late it is. We're already behind schedule. um, But uh, of course, we're very, very excited at the opportunity to speak with you.
3: Oh, well, thank
0: you. Um, we we probably um, well I, I know that I know that yeah, I've had some conversations with you in the past as well, Kate. But I I know that uh, that you and Scott have a have a have a pretty strong connection. Um, I I think that that I'll just see the floor to him and let him and let him start. Okay. Uh, so um, I guess one of
1: the first things is we we mentioned that you were uh, a pastor. Um, Mm -hmm. so, uh, what was the denomination and, um, you know, uh, how long were you part of that church or how long, um, how long had you been a pastor?
3: Well, I had only been a pastor, um, when I started doubting about three years and, um, I, but I have been in ministry for about, um, 21. So, um, My husband and I have, basically since we got married, that was kind of our mission when we got married even, um, to go into uh, lifelong ministry. And um, so he had several, um, I grew up in a Southern Baptist um, denomination, so when he and I got married, uh, we went into a Baptist um, church and... Um, he was a youth minister, and I was more involved with uh, the praise team, and which basically, if someone doesn't know it, it's it's like a song leader, basically. And um, I did a lot with children um, ministry and that sort of thing. So uh, we just kind of, our marriage kind of grew up in the church. In about um, 10 years, uh, let's see, we, we were at our first church, which was a fairly large church for about nine years. And then um, we started feeling uh, the call. I'm going to talk like I, I was back then just because um, I, I wanted, yeah. don't want you yeah. to hear it how it was. Yeah. Uh, we Absolutely. felt the call to, to start a new church, um, something that would be a little more discussion oriented and a little more people who were not comfortable in a, a, a stiff kind of institutional type church. We wanted it to be a place where people who doubted would feel comfortable and um, and not, you know, make it where everybody had to believe the same thing. So that church became more of an interdenominational church. And so we served um, – we, we basically had, that church is the one I became a pastor in. But it, it kind of happened in a weird dynamic where um, after a really big discussion on um, – women in leadership and having a big debate and kind of, um, having people reveal different ways of viewing those scriptures and how they felt that, um, you know, all the scriptures around women and how they felt it was, um, I guess how, how they interpreted it. It made me question how I had always interpreted it. And growing up in a Southern Baptist, um, church, I definitely felt men were meant to be the leader, um, you know, I think an undercurrent of that is I thought they were more important in a way, you know, that um, it was my role to follow. And I'm a pretty, um, I'm kind of a follower anyway, so that kind of fit my personality. But um, but I'll say that that conversation, the big discussion we had, created a real uneasiness in me. And I started feeling like God was calling me to be a pastor or to be a, yeah, to be a pastor there. And um Pretty much everybody in the church felt so too. So, um, at that time, my husband was not in a teaching role; he's more administrative, and um, we have a different, uh, co- well, co-pastor now, but um, that had taken over teaching. And anyway, I'm not sure. Is this the direction you want me to go?
1: Oh no, <laughs> this is, this have, is you actually. You don't have a direction. You no, know, okay. no, this is this is absolute. Just wherever you want to go with it, and you brought up okay. a few points that I that I want to get to. Um, but okay. before we get uh, further into it, because there's so many things that you uh, you said there that I want to touch on, um, when you were talking okay. about Corey's um, uh, uh, little thing that he had read, uh, said about uh, spirituality, and that you wanted okay. to, to have that printed up and have that sent to you, I uh, inspired <laughs> uh, somebody else to want to talk about spirituality, too. And we have um, uh, Robert Hamilton on the line to, to discuss its spirituality. So I wanted to get to that real quick, if we could. Okay. Robert, are you there?
2: Yes, I'm. I'm here. Am I on the air? Yes, you are. Okay, sounds great. This has been What did you have
1: to say about spirituality?
2: Well, uh, a couple of things that I I, I wanted to raise. First of all, um, I think the uh, the points that were uh, raised through the through the quotes were uh, kind of uh, spot on with respect to the idea of uh, of the emotion of awe and wonder. Um, people have these emotions and they really don't know where they come from. They just, they just have these emotions. And so when they see, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, a wonderful panorama landscape or something, they, uh, they're all inspired and they, and they immediately think this has to be some kind of uh, supernatural experience. Uh, and, uh and but, so they really they have a, a a real experience a real emotional experience that they're feeling, uh, but they have to attribute it to something. So um, yeah, I, I think it's sen- simply trying to attribute um, an emotional feeling. So um, what do you think
1: the answer is then for the for the secular community the atheist community to um, what, to What's the idea to experience that that awe and that beauty and um, realize that you don't need to attach it to anything?
2: Well, when people when people say they're they're, they're you know they're feeling uh, spiritual and uh, point to some kind of supernatural connection, uh, I think really it's it's a question of asking, wow, that's an interesting. Uh, interpretation, is that the only explanation for this? Um, Is there any other explanation for this? And if there is not any other explanation, why is there not any other explanation possible um, other than a a supernatural one? In other words, why do they immediately go to the least probable uh, explanation?
0: I like where you're going Mm -hmm. with this. This is uh this is sounding very familiar.
2: Yeah, we of course. So I mean I mean it's often raised I think typically very closely linked to, to uh, uh deistic and uh, pantheistic mm-hmm. concepts of uh, nature is wonderful and uh and is uh, evokes this, these spiritual feelings. And uh I, I think the thing that that seals the deal is that they have they have real feelings. People are experiencing... I mean uh, are really feeling some kind of awe or experience or beauty experience
1: and it's it's like that that sam Harris quote that I read at the top of the show that um that says to be able to have that that feeling that experience um and uh, be able to have it for no reason yeah and and not the have to
2: thing, attach it the the other thing i i i i'd i'd say is of course that uh, you know atheists are a wide why they diverse group, and there are those who uh, lack a belief in God, but do maintain a belief in souls, bel- uh, belief in reincarnation, belief in other kinds of supernatural phenomena, um, and, and so um, yeah. So they so they uh, so the spirituality that they refer to links to uh, these other supernatural. Uh, that That uh, may not have a direct foundation in God, but they ha- they have have a have a foundation in in these kinds of emotional experiences
1: I, I think you 're right
2: so that's that's uh, that 's how I would react and when somebody says i 'm you know spiritual but not religious uh, in terms of interpreting what this spiritual feeling is, how is it that one have to conclude that this is su- supernatural.
0: It's um, it's it's sounding almost like you might be leading somewhere. Uh, did you did you have uh, a guess at our logic that fallacy puzzle this week?
2: Okay, well my yeah, my guess, and this is a really a little bit of a shot in the dark, um, with all the mystical aspects to it. My guess. And it's just a guess is that this is uh, appeal to tradition or argument from tradition that uh, if these great long rituals that go back, God knows how long uh, do something, if they worked before, this is why they we're, were doing it now.
0: Quite close. I will say that's quite close. In fact, that's closer than my initial guess. Um, so well done there. Um, that is not the the fallacy that was intended in the story, but you were you were basically describing the fallacy when you were talking about spirituality. Um, I thought for sure that that you were gonna that you were gonna nail that one right on the head, but very 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 close.
2: Okay, oh, that sounds great.
0: Robert, thank you so much as always for giving us a call. We sure appreciate it when you have the opportunity to uh, to uh, to call and, and be on the air with us. Um, we were we were grateful when you called in last time. That was a great addition to the conversation during our uh, anti-theist episode. We appreciate you again tonight. Let me ask you before you go: uh, Do you feel a, a sense of spirituality as an atheist? Uh,
2: well, I, have three, I, I today I would call it awe and wonder and uh, beauty and things. I, I wouldn't necessarily call it spirituality. I would. I wouldn't necessarily label it that way. Um, I, you know, it's it's really more uh, uh, an emotion.
0: That uh, I think is uh, precisely where we uh, we end up getting into uh, problems with our our vocabulary. Uh, the same can be said for uh, the word sacred. Uh, We've had this conversation where there are things in this in this life in reality that I consider sacred, but the vocabulary is very, very tied up into the tradition of God beliefs in various religions. And so we either have to carve out new space inside of that word or we need new words in order to express the difference between uh, common emotions like anger or joy. Uh, and the uh, the more transcendent emotions that that sort of make one stop and, and, and might lead to an epiphany or, or make one feel um, uh, very very thoughtful about uh, about life in sort of a, a personal uh, transcendent way all right well let 's um uh, thank you kate for for uh, hanging out with us uh, during uh, that discussion. Uh, the phone lines are still open if somebody else has a guess on the uh, on the fallacy again Robert was very very close six four six five six four nine five five one We definitely want to move forward um, uh, with uh, with kate when was when was this uh, this church that you uh, that you felt uh, called upon to open. When 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 was this? Uh, about how long ago was this?
3: Uh, when did we open the church, or when did I feel called
0: to ministry,
3: or when did I feel called to be a pastor?
0: I would actually love an answer to both.
3: Okay, so uh, the church—it's been about 13 years, and uh, the for me, pastoring—that's been about four. Yeah because i think it was 2013 that i actually got ordained and it um they had me go through like a 6 month process of people walking uh of meeting weekly with um a certain group of people in the church um a kind of a select that they helped let the pastor uh, the pastor along with me chose and um and so they were able to i don't talk through any issues or, um, they just kind of probed into my life basically. And, um, and I, I allowed that, I mean, I offered that and they basically kind of, um, came at the end, just said, we feel that we agree with you, that you're being called. We see God's calling on your life. So, um, then I became a pastor. I will say during that time period of, um, before ordination, um, I did something that was, Um, I probably to me, it's one of the things that, um, I, I, when people talk about, um, you know, when they tell me, well, you must never have been a Christian or whatever. I, I like to reference this back from my own sanity, but that I felt God calling me to fast for 40 days on only water and, um, during that time period. And so, um, I knew everybody around me would be a little bit alarmed by that. So I didn't tell anybody for the first two weeks. And, um, so, because once you get to that point, you, you can't eat or you could be in really bad trouble. And so, um, I waited to tell just a few people at that point, And then, um, just because I thought that the weird thing was my family didn't know this, but that's another point. But, um, I, I will say that, um, for to do um for me personally that was a very great feat in a way um looking back it alarms a little bit because um i don't know what i was thinking but um but i there is something about it that i was so seeking god and wanting to know is this what he wanted me to do because i had um honestly a lot of wrestling with um whether god would want a woman in leadership and it seems so ridiculous to me now but um but that was a big deal for me to come to that conclusion and um and so um you know i i think that um i always wanted to do what was right and it was very important to me to try to figure out what that was and it saddens me now looking back because i tried so hard to figure it out and you know i was figuring out um basically a you know an imagining thing you know um but um, that wasn't how it felt to me at the time
1: there, there's a, a couple of things i wanted to get to like i like i said before yeah. but um yeah just to quick i guess get it out of the way um
2: uh-huh.
1: you when you uh talked about you you said earlier you were going to talk like you did back then uh, okay yeah believer. i should talk like i do okay so would you? They, what, that would probably what, be
3: better.
1: Yeah. How would you identify today?
3: Um, how would I identify what?
1: Uh, as uh, as a theist, as an agnostic. Uh, oh. When We first talked a year okay, ago. You yeah. identified that as an agnostic theist.
3: Yes, I did. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, oh, definitely, uh, I would say agnostic atheist.
1: Okay um uh, you know a, a few months after we talked initially a year ago we talked again and then, we were talking about the idea of deism and uh-huh. that at that time kind of held some appeal for you what are your thoughts yeah. on deism now if you are identifying as an agnostic atheist you didn't it seems that you kind of thought about the step of deism and dismissed uh-huh. it or did you identify as a deist for a few months or
3: I think in a way it gave me comfort for a little while to just try to think of um, maybe an energy of God energy within nature. Um, I can't say that it still doesn't appeal to me at times, but um, but I guess once I got, once I had let go of um, viewing the Christian God in the way that I had viewed him for I call it him because that's always how it was referenced to me, but um, for my whole life, I I think that once I let that go, then everything else just kind of seemed ridiculous. Like it seemed almost silly to hang on to something else, um, hang on to a God that's not involved at all, but then, you know, around, uh, it just seemed like what, I don't know what the point of that is. Like that might be... Yeah, it didn't really involve my life or change my
1: life or anything. Yeah, I completely understand that. Um, And uh, there's something you said uh, a few months ago that kind of made me think this, but you you said this again tonight, or not again, something else tonight, where you said you guys had a discussion about women in the leadership role in the church, and that kind of made you start feeling the calling to, to become a minister. Do you uh-huh. think in any way looking back that that was just more of a calling to fight for your right as a woman to be able to be in any role you wanted to be in? And you were just as a, as a theist with the idea that God existed, mistaking that, that deep yearning to be treated as an equal as a call from God?
3: I think I think um it awakened something in me that had always wrestled with that. I think um yeah, I think you you could be exactly right. Um I do think there was a part of me that suddenly said, "Wait, those passages can be interpreted differently." And I've thought this way all this time. Um I was also I'm also one of the older women in our church, so I think too. Almost, uh, um, it almost felt like um, necessary, maybe, to be an example of that and not let them live in this subordinate kind of role um, that I had been taught to do. You know, um, yeah, but definitely, I I think that had a lot to do with it. Looking back, um, I think just hearing those things changed a perspective in my mind about. Women in leadership and all that stuff. So yeah, I definitely think that probably was what it was in a lot of ways. Um, I didn't recognize it as that at the time, but
1: well, and it's something that I I never even considered until you just mentioned it tonight in 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 passing. Really, just uh, I felt that call from God, and I was like, I wonder what that really was. And mm-hmm. yeah, you know, that's very interesting. Yeah, and
3: in a lot of ways, I look back at that and think, I think that was
1: uh, the first
3: thread. You know, uh, the first thread of the unraveling, I think it started something. Um, It gave me permission to look at the Bible in very different ways and look at all the angles. And um, it opened the door for when I did start teaching I wanted, you know, my, I had this drive to be right. So I started studying all these books, reading all these different views. And unfortunately, it just kept raising questions. And I was trying to, I wanted to be a pastor with the answers, you know. Um, and I kept just finding questions. And um, that's Isn't kind of funny how that goes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And so you mentioned you're, you're raised. Southern Baptist. You've been in the, the mm-hmm. church your whole life. You felt, you know, you and your husband feel that you're calling to be in lifelong ministry. Then, uh-huh. then you feel this this deep yearning to be a pastor, and you you become a pastor, and you then you feel uh, <laughs> a stronger calling to to fast and be the best pastor that you can be, and as close to God as you can be, and have all the answers that uh-huh. you can have, and it leads you to questions and questions and questions. So, at what point yeah. did you realize those questions were? I'm doubting the existence of God, and
2: yeah.
1: how did you decide, because I know that that led you to the secular community and, and other doubting theists as well to start asking questions uh, on that very topic, why did yeah. you embrace the doubt? What, what gave you the permission in your mind to embrace the doubt where others will fight the doubt and, and bury themselves deeper in the faith?
3: Wow I you know i I can tell you kind of the path that that happened. I'm not exactly sure why I was okay with it. well, you know i ironically, my drive to be right maybe maybe made that easier because I wanted to know the truth regardless and and I wanted to be as honest as I could be about the process i don't I don't even know why, but um. I think partly because I hate the fakeness sometimes in, in the church. So maybe I just didn't want to be that. I didn't want – I don't know. But I will say as far as um, – oh, I'm kind of blanking. You asked another question. I had a thought there, but I lost it. Um, uh,
1: no, I, yeah, I think you're, you're, you're doing just fine. You're, you're, you're covering
0: exactly <laughs> what I asked. Okay. When you were um, uh, a believer, um, you were a believer for the vast majority of your life. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious um, about the motivation there. Um, what was it that kept you... Believing, what was it that kept you um, putting in the work to? Uh, I'm, I'm not. I'm, I might be presuming here to, to write a sermon or to um, mm-hmm. uh, to continue to engage with people. What what brought you coming back to the church uh, every week uh, in order to kind of further these ideas, further the apologetics, further the the theology that you were a part of? Well,
3: um, you mean while I was doubting? Is that what you mean?
0: I mean, the entire time that you were a believer, um, what, oh, my what whole life. You,
3: okay. Yeah. okay. Um, yeah. Okay. So I think for me, uh, for me personally, I think there was a sense of safety. Um, I think it was tied to feeling like someone was looking out for me, um, that it didn't matter if I messed up horribly. Um, there was a plan for my life that I could get back to it. Um, I think I just felt like, um, yeah, like there was this Father that was out there, and um but on the other hand, too, um i you know i um I definitely believed in the afterlife, I believed in heaven and hell, I didn't want to go to hell, I think that was a big driving force, I mean, I didn't realize how much till I stopped believing um then it, and then I found how how much that had controlled me a bit but yeah I think I think for me the biggest loss would have been well I'll just say I mean as far as I think it was also just feeling like you had that constant friend with me to talk to to kind of figure things out I don't love making decisions so I felt like I had that in in you know uh, kind of in my thought to, that God could talk to me and help me in my decisions and you know goals, and I felt like I mattered more because I mattered to him. So I have to say, you guys, what you were talking about earlier, blowing my mind. I I just it, it was so good, and I'm gonna have to go back and listen to it again because I was some of it. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is going over my head a little bit. But um, <laughs> anyway, I it really connected with me.
0: Yeah. Um, so that, that leads me. To- to my next question, if we, if we, if uh-huh. we rely on on the uh, yeah. um, the definition that we began with, a true spiritual practitioner is someone who has discovered that it is possible to be at ease in the world for no reason, if only for a few moments at a time, and that such ease is synonymous with transcending the apparent boundaries of the self. It sounds like that's precisely what you're describing with the addition of um, instead of it being for no reason, you were ascribing it to – um, and stop me if i'm if i'm being pr- too presumptuous to uh either god or jesus or some part of the trinity uh something that was mm-hmm. there to help guide you hold your hand uh to keep you from feeling alone to provide hope when things seemed uh, seemed dire would you say that that your primary reason for uh for your primary motivation for being a believer for for doing the day-to-day work um was a spiritual one
3: yes Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah.
0: Now that you are, um, a agnostic atheist, Uh do you still feel uh, a sense of spirituality? Do you, do you have those same feelings, but without the God belief?
3: Yes, I do. And that was shocking to me. Um, I, yes, I do. I, It is really interesting, and I feel weird a little bit talking about this, but um, I definitely have, um, I still have that connectedness with my mind um, that I did when I used to pray. But now I just know it's me working something out. And, you know, I was really devastated. I mean, I did grieve the loss of kind of this magic and wonder and all this, you know, um, what was going to be beyond death You know, um, when I lost my belief I definitely lost that And that was difficult It, I really, I cried about it. I mean, for a while But I've since found a new um, A new thing Like, I feel like because of um, Realizing that I only have this one life I'm embracing it a lot more I'm being in the present more I also have found this new love of nature and I'm taking a gardening class and I'm, um, you know, I'm studying the cosmos and there's something about it that took away, taking away that other world, like y'all were talking about earlier, it, it, it enhanced the beauty of this one. I mean, it helped me appreciate, you know, our moments and um, just, and just everything you know, and not take it for granted. I'm healthier now. And weirdly enough, I tend to be eating better and doing um, more things for my health, and just because I realize I only get one life, which seems so silly saying that now, but but I did think, uh, you know, like the cat with nine lives. I felt like I had another life, you know, coming, and um, and yeah, but I definitely find that when I have a problem. You know, I can even, if I need to, do the same act of asking the question to the air, you know, and just let the first things that come to me, let that be my answers or working out of answers, just like I did when it was God. But now I know it's me. You know, it's just me working it out. And that sounds like I'm talking to myself. <laughs> Sometimes I do, but um, but something about that is very I don't know. I'm not sure if I find that part spiritual, but it, there is a kind of wonderness about
2: it.
0: That is um that is that is beautiful to me. Yeah. Um I, I really find that to be um inspiring. Um I, I really think that that is that that is a, a, an amazing an amazing thing to be able to acknowledge um and I and I think that I think that we all uh, talk to ourselves. I don't. I don't find that to be silly at all. I think that we all kind of, uh, you know, people do it through meditation, people do it through uh, self-reflection, uh-huh. quiet moments. Uh, we all have something of an inner dialogue. Um, people often want to ascribe that to your your conscience. Maybe that's a fair enough word, or to the Holy Ghost, or um, to sure. your to your your soul, your spirit. I, I mean, you call it what you will, but. Um, what, right. what, what matters more is not, I think, the label that we place on that, but rather what we do when we experience it. If we feel ourselves uh, in a moment of doubt, if we, if we can find that inner dialogue, that's completely natural. The the, the, the problem, I think, for people arises when you begin uh, insisting that, that, oh, I'm not good enough to do this on my own. I'm not I, – I, I shouldn't talk to myself. How pointless would that be? I, there must be some other ear out there that is listening to what I have to say, that is helping me with the sinner dialogue, uh, anything good that I do, any any positivity, any any altruistic attitude, well, that all must be ascribed to God. And anything that is negative and wrong and wretched, that's me. That's my sin. That's the devil. That's something inside of me that deserves punishment, that deserves hell, that must be cleansed. Um, this is where, where uh, I begin to call religion solipsistic. This idea that, you you think of yourself as so unworthy of everything that you cannot determine your own fate, your own destiny. You cannot seize any kind of claim or right on your own life, determine how to behave, where to go, how to live your life based on uh, what you think someone else wants rather than uh, acknowledging that it is indeed yourself.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I had one friend tell me... uh, when I was really stressing about that, that now all I have to rely on is me. And they said, it's been you all along. And something about that just freed me to trust it. <laughs> it's the weirdest thing.
0: It really is beautiful. I, um, I'm, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to, um, to speak with you. And I've, I've appreciated, uh, the other conversations that, um, that we've been able to have uh, not on the air, but, but previously throughout the last uh, few months, I know that, uh, I know that, that Scott feels the same way. You're, you're a person who, who has some, some credibility here. Someone who has really been in it. Somebody who, who thought that they had that calling uh, somebody who was an absolute, uh, a true uh, believer in Christianity uh, going so far as to be a pastor and have your own church. And then Um, Also having the courage to not just shovel away all of the doubts and fears and the questions, but to instead turn and face them head on in your own time, in your own way, um, without that making you lost, without uh, being swamped with fear by that. And and here you are having emerged from this time uh, with a new outlook on life and with uh, yourself intact and in fact highlighted in sort of a a beautiful and brilliant way. I think there are a lot of people that are um, in a similar position that are probably trying to, to uh, follow um, uh, the same sort of journey that you've been on uh, who are struggling with, uh, with uh, these kinds of doubts and, and might not yet be at a place where they have the internal strength or for whatever reason, because of their community are very, very fearful of being labeled as an apostate. That's technically what you are now you are an apostate. In many countries around the world and in many eras previous, that would have been a death sentence. And yet here you are, this shining example of the human spirit.
3: Well, thank you. That is very sweet. I appreciate that.
1: I just, um, I just have one more question. And I want yeah. you to, to go ahead and just kind of answer it along with, if you could just take a couple of minutes. We're, we're running low on time with such a great conversation. Yeah. But Maybe two yep. minutes to just kind of say something to maybe the other disbelievers out there who are struggling with coming forward or, or pursuing their doubt any further. And, and I'll just kind of ask the question and um, and then let you go ahead and talk about it. And this, okay. this happened about uh, 10 months ago. We were talking and when you were doubting, and I kind of gave you some, you, you, had, uh, you had answered a question I, I gave you with, uh, it was faith faith that uh, had you believing. And I asked you a typical counter apologetics about um, why would you be required faith when the followers in biblical times were readily shown and communicated with God and and God appeared to them? and uh, They they weren't required faith. And what I thought was interesting about it is that you gave me uh, a beautiful piece of apologetics that you told me, I would get from the faithful uh, about how they need—they it was part of God's plan for them to not need the faith and, and, and et cetera, et cetera. But you made it very clear to me that that wasn't your stance, that you didn't know, and that that was also a problem for you. And my question is—is is, do you think you were maybe already out the door on the belief at that point, or or do you? And if not, when exactly did you become an atheist? Did you know that moment? Oh, I I don't believe anymore. And and what would you say to someone else who's right at that moment um, themselves right now? And just a couple of minutes. I'm sorry.
3: No, Um, I was starting to probably feel like I might be on the way out. I don't think I was quite there yet. Um, I was still hanging on. I feel like somewhat t- not tightly but I just there were some threads I couldn't let go of when we had that conversation. I think I definitely um and I will tell you I uh, basically where it hit for me is when I studied enough to realize um for me I guess I put a lot of stock in the fact that the Bible was pretty much literal for the most part and um when I uncovered Um, quite a bit of reading and document and history that to me showed that it was not and that um, there was a whole lot of mess and how the Bible was even put together. Um, That kind of, that did it for me. I feel like once that was gone, I, it wasn't too hard to let go because I just looked at other religions, but yeah, if I have to say, I want to say real quick, what I would say to someone who is doubting i it's a, it's really a grieving process and don't let anyone push you to go faster than you need to go. Um, don't over, it, I had times that overwhelmed myself and then times that I had to take a break. Do that, do it how it feels good. Because the thing is, if you're going to keep asking questions, you'll come to the conclusion eventually. And your conclusion might be different than mine, but um, just be gentle on yourself. I would say be very gentle.
1: Okay, that is excellent. Uh, Kate, thank you so much for uh for joining us tonight and sharing your story and being so open and brave about it. it's just It just meant a lot. We really did appreciate it. Thank you
3: for having me. I love talking to you guys.
1: When I was uh, doubting my beliefs as a teenager, I remember being in church wondering if others were thinking what I was thinking. And I remember being too scared to ask. I grew up in a small town in which everyone was a believer. So much so that when I became a non-believer, I didn't know that there were other non-believers, let alone a title for us. I had thought that there was something wrong with me something I lacked that everyone else had. I must have a deficiency. Atheist. When I found the word, I was so happy. Atheist. One who lacks a God belief. I was an atheist. But more importantly, I wasn't alone. There are others just like me. I have a community I belong to. When I told my family and friends, I was told this was just a phase that I just needed to pray, that one day I would see the truth. Serious arguments arose with my parents about whether or not I would baptize my children. Threats of no more contact Contact came from both sides, mine and theirs, just because I dared say that I didn't want to take things on faith. My atheism was not accepted or understood for quite some time. While I now have a better relationship with my family, it was forever altered when I left our religion. In some countries, apostasy is punished with imprisonment or even death, and oftentimes not a quick death, but a brutal one at the hands of the masses who have decided that their way is the only way, death in which limbs are severed from body. Luckily, here in America, doubt is seldom met with physical violence, but that's not to say that harm does not fall on the questioning. In lieu of severed limbs, the critical thinker instead has to endure severed friendships, the loss of contact with loved ones. Family members who refuse to believe that they aren't being controlled by evil spirits. Parents who won't look them in the eyes or even let them back in the house. Sure, here we may not fear death as atheists, but we do suffer, as do secular minds around the globe. People are dying for refusing to adhere to ancient superstitions. People's lives are being shattered for simply saying, I don't agree with that. When humans stop thinking, they tend to stop thinking about their fellow humans. Never stop thinking.
0: We cannot express enough our gratitude to Kate, the doubting pastor, for being with us for the evening. It has it has meant a great deal uh, that she was willing to uh, to come on and speak with us. Um, we hope that anybody out there who is uh, listening, uh, either live now or in the future on some sort of replay, uh, will will. Uh, Take her words to heart. We'll we'll find some um, some familiar notions in what she had to say, uh, and be able to uh, acknowledge that uh, that you are not alone. We think it's really really important that people refuse to be alone, regardless of what doubts you may be having, regardless of what you think might happen to you or your relationships because of your doubts. Not to hide what you are naturally, just because of those. Fears. It has been a uh, sincere pleasure, and uh, we thank her very, very much for joining us uh, on tonight's broadcast. This has been the Informed Secular Minds podcast. You can follow us on Twitter and on Periscope at ISMPodcast underscore. Uh, You can follow Scott at El Duterino on both of those platforms and myself uh, at Dopinephrine. Uh, We also want to give a shout-out to Cat is Cat for helping us with the show behind the scenes. You can follow her. Uh, at uh, uh, All Hallows Night on Twitter and Cat underscore it is underscore Cat on Periscope. Uh, Youngass on three nine nine hosts our broadcast on Periscope. We thank him as well. Arabin of course does our graphics for us each week. We are going to be back next Wednesday for another fantastic episode. We are looking very much forward to that. Uh, Logic that fallacy will be up on Twitter this coming week, so that people can continue to guess. If you're enjoying the broadcast, we want you to consider becoming a patron for us. You can get us at patreon.com slash podcast. We support each and every one of our supporters, and we encourage you to help us over there. Good night.